Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. And we are recording. How's everyone today? How's the leaf blower situation in our respective neighborhoods? They're done. All quiet here in Springs. Excellent. They were out early here in Hampton Bay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bill's dogs are active this morning. <laughs> they're, they're barking at the leaf blowers. <laughs> there you go. What else? We also talked about oatmeal this morning and how that's breakfast of champions. So, and cream of wheat. Big fan. Big fan generally, but just, especially with winter coming. Yeah. Put some berries in it. But you know, I'm old, I'm old school. Steve, you, I, I, I actually buy the old fashioned that you have to cook on the stove. Is that, are you, are you an instant oats guy? There's nothing instant about me. <laughs> <laughs> You're old school all the way. That's, it's so much better though. <laughs> All right, let's get to the old school introduction. So um, running the controls as usual is Bill Sutton. Nice blur today, by the way, my friend. Why, thank you. That's just because my house is such a mess today. Not that it's normally very clean, but um, I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Joe Shaw here. Looks very tired though. Hey, Joe. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's late in the week. Hi, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Stephen Coates, reporter extraordinaire here. Hey, Stephen. Morning. Jeez. <laughs> aren't, aren't we happy this morning? I haven't slept. I haven't slept for three days. Something, <laughs> something I said. I'm taking this sleep apnea test. I've taken it two nights and it's not, it's not been fun. So I'm like, yeah, how do you sleep with all that stuff on your head? Anyways, you don't exactly. But but I will say, Steve, I I I have the um, I have the machine, and I sleep like a baby with the machine. It's really changed my life. So if they find you do have sleep apnea and they get you the machine, I think you're going to be happy with it. And I think that the test causes sleep apnea. So if you don't have it, they're going to find that you do. That have may it. be. Yeah. Well, I slept like a baby last night. I, you know, every 90 minutes I woke up crying. <laughs> <laughs> so if you doze off in the middle of our podcast, we'll know why. Yeah, that's what's going on here. Well, we'll let you know if you snore because that's also another sign. So also here today are co-publishers, Catherine Jean Manu and her husband, Gavin Manu. And they are actually even in the same room, which is kind of a rarity these days, I think, isn't it, guys? It is. I, I often make my way to the office while uh, Georgie stays uh, stays here on the home front. But yes, we are here today in the same room. This is a very special moment. Wow. <laughs> Happy to see you. And um, I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And um, this is a big day. Um, I'll give you a number, 595, right? Gavin, is that the number? That's right. We... Uh, made our way back to the American Hotel yesterday for the return of our Express Session series. And it was the uh, 
I went back in the archives and dug up the last time that uh, that Joe and I stood before a room of, of a live audience, and that was 595 days earlier. Uh, one of the panelists, Bob Plum, was even on that panel from the 595 days earlier. Uh, so it's been a long haul. It was, uh, I have to say, it was really, really great to be back. It was kind of weird, kind of nerve wracking. A lot of people uh, in the room, um, you know, expressed the same sentiment that they were very excited to be back doing it, but that it felt a little strange. So yeah. off we go. So everybody enjoyed a lunch and everybody was fully vaccinated, right? It's an important aspect. Yeah, you know, we're trying to be smart and trying to be safe about the events. And I think that'll just help get us back to, to normal with these things. Normally, we would pack nearly 70 people into that room at the American Hotel. Yesterday, we had 45. Uh, we are requiring vaccinations. We feel that that um, just adds a level of comfort and a level of safety to everybody. And uh, we were thanked profusely by those in attendance for having those policies our events director, Ellen Diaguardi, did a great job gathering up all that information. And again, um, I, ju I just can't emphasize enough how, how much better it is to have, uh, have these meetings in person. Afterwards, people spilled onto the sidewalks and were talking to each other about the topics and uh, you know, village trustees with advocates together, all in the same room, uh, talking about it afterwards. I think it's just a real uh, important uh, moment for the community to come together like that when it's not in a town boardroom or a village hall, a little more relaxed, you know, we're breaking bread, we're having lunch, and uh, it was a very constructive conversation. And I think it's also kind of fun, um, you know, to see us being able after all of this time to move them back into person. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the Zoom events we did last year, which I think were so important and just keeping conversations going and connecting with people. I mean, Zoom just became such a huge part of our culture, but it is exciting to see us going back um, to in-person and, and feeling safe being able to do that. Yeah. I wonder if things slow down in the municipal governments or even just so, you know, just everybody being on Zoom, or, you know, are there things that happen when you're on the sidewalk talking to people after an event like this that just would never happen when you're only doing things remotely? It'd be a good thesis for somebody to take on. Yeah, well, I was talking about, I was talking about that yesterday, you know, when you're on a zoom meeting and you click end meeting everybody's just in their living room alone. Whereas, uh, you know, at this sort of thing. Yeah, there's, there's definitely spillover and, and those conversations that happen behind the scenes are often, you know, just as important, um, you know, being able to, to grab the ear of the mayor. Uh, you know, casually outside on the sidewalk is not something that happens when you're going to remote meetings. So I think I think there's definitely something to it. I think that that the village officials really appreciated uh, the conversation, uh, which we'll get into in a moment about the details. But yes, I think being live uh, adds a layer of connectivity that doesn't exist. That was the whole point of starting them, right? Was to to not only have that conversation, but to spark the larger conversation um, in the community. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and that's and that's the difference between a meeting like this and, and sort of a, a municipal meeting is that, you know, on the panel or a few other people, a business owner, a, a sort of a community advocate. And, you know, it, it, it never fails that in the room are often some of the most important stakeholders in whatever topic you are discussing. And that was the case yesterday at the hotel. The topic was the waterfront zoning. Uh, code that's being proposed by Sag Harbor Village. And uh, the people who were there have been following the process since day one. And it's um, it's a different type of uh, environment than, than a, a, a village meeting, which, 
can be intimidating for some people and you're on the village's time and you're, you're following their procedures. Whereas this is a much more casual discussion where um, a, lot, a lot of voices are able to be heard. It was nice to be able to go back to the format of having a live audience that can then participate because you know this is the standard thing about Zoom and we've talked about it um, with public meetings too. It's very much the same thing. It's really helpful in getting more people into the room, quote unquote, because you can have more people that are able to watch things. And so I've found that for things like debates, I think it's really actually arguably better to do them on Zoom because mm -hmm. I think people don't get as, I mean, look, when people are running for local office, they're not generally public speakers and they get a little intimidated getting up in front of a crowd in a, in a live setting and giving speeches. And I think when you, when you do it on Zoom, um, there's a lot more comfort level. And, and it's really just about those people talking and getting that out to the most people. But something like we did yesterday is the whole point is that it should be a conversation and it's about answering questions. And that's tough to do on Zoom in a, in a really effective way. And I think we saw um, that whole conversation. It, it, it's, you know, let's be, let's be honest. It's a fairly dry subject. It's, it's a tough subject. But once you get a lot of people in the room who have an investment in it, as we did, it's not a dry conversation at all. It starts to become much, much livelier. People have lots that they want to know and lots they want to add. I would say in Sac Harbor, zoning is never really a dry conversation because <laughs> development and development pressure. I mean, that's just like what everybody is always talking about, you know, and especially in the last couple of years. Um, you know, with the Friends of Bay Street proposal, with um, the Bialski condos actually going up and being constructed and what the reality of those are. Um, so like development in Sag Harbor and the protecting the waterfront and zoning codes, like while traditionally, I agree, Joe, a dry and um, not necessarily like sexy topic in Sag Harbor, it's what everybody wants to talk about. Absolutely. So let's talk about it. We should set up what the session was about. We could bring Steve into the conversation too. So this was about Sag Harbor rethinking how the waterfront should be used and also the size of developments and the layer of protection to make sure that things don't go up that are not in keeping with the vision of Sag Harbor. Is that kind of where we were? Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the great things about the session yesterday was that the village attorney, Elizabeth Vale was on the panel and she was able to break down the proposed code into uh, some very uh, you know, digestible pieces, gave some bullet points so people knew exactly what we were looking, looking at. All right, let's listen to that. You addressed before the, one of the biggest components was moving away from the form part of the form-based code and um, one of the things that wasn't mentioned was that, you know, the uniqueness of the development in Sag Harbor, one of the characteristics that's in every prior planning study is how unique the architecture is, how special that makes your village and how um, important it is. And it it's also contributes to the uh, historic district and those standards. So uh, one thing that a form-based code does is that it offers you forms of buildings that you're supposed to replicate. Um, and one thing that wasn't done in the prior um, study was typically when you're seeking preservation of, of what you have, you wanna preserve what you have, that unique character of the village, 
you would do a survey, a planning survey of the existing buildings in the village and then propose forms that actually emulate, look like, or achieve something in relation to those existing buildings you want to save or preserve um, to maintain your character of community, and that never happened here. So they moved away from the form base code. That was a major component. Um, the second component was um, establishing the 3,500 square foot review by the Village Board of Trustees, and then also just incorporating um, a second section of the water, establishing the waterfront overlay district, and incorporating standards from the form based code that everyone seemed to support to um, restrict development in a meaningful way to preserve the character of the waterfront. Um, and put them in as standards in your waterfront overlay district. This whole thing really, you know, in a nutshell, it comes out of the, uh, the, the construction of the three condos by Jay Bielski is all part of the deal that got the village uh, uh, Steinbeck Park. And the simple fact is, is that a lot of people don't like the way those condominiums turned out. Um, they didn't, they were approved. They went through all the regulatory boards. They, they, they you know, they were approved, um, but they, they seemed to loom over the street. So the, there, be, there was a concern that with other properties coming into play, things like uh, 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 Water Street Shops, which was on the market, um, and the, you know, the Malloy property is another one that's always been concerned, uh, there's been a lot of concern about that somehow the village's waterfront would eventually, I think, be walled off, I think is the concern. So this was an effort to provide a little air, a little spacing, um, control, just control the, the intensity of it all. And so the guests that you had on the panel, you had Mayor Jim LaRocca and you had the village's lawyer, Bob Plum was on, who's also a trustee on the village board. Who else did you have on the panel discussion? And we also had Nata Gozi, the owner of the Sag Harbor Inn and member of the, the Chamber of Commerce, who uh, throughout this process has weighed in a number of times with always good stuff to say. Um, and then we had Susan Mead, a former um, Zoning Board of Appeals member, who also has, uh, you know, her, her her career was in is, as an attorney, as, specifically in, in land use issues. And she was there to, uh, you know, I think to kind of uh, provide a little bit of a counterpoint and to ask some, some questions. Um, and she's, she's, she's done a, a deeper dive on this than I have, I can tell you that. So, so I guess part of it was this is sort of a rethinking of where the village was looking to go with the waterfront under former Mayor Kathleen Mulcahy. Is that is this sort of what, what um, Mayor Jim LaRocca would like to do? Is it a reinvention of how we look at the waterfront or just more of a tweaking of what they were looking at during Kathleen Mulcahy's tenure. So like if, if, if the original proposal under Mulcahy was like a 59 Cadillac with lots of chrome and fins, this is more like, a, um, you know, a, a 2021 Cadillac sort of a, a smooth uh, aerodynamic <laughs> thing. They got rid of a lot of the bells and whistles. Um, and they, the first thing, you know, they expanded the, the, the um, jurisdiction to include Cor Maria, uh, which is important because even though Cor Maria is a is a you know, retreat house, it is zoned for residential, and and they could sell it at some point and right. you know create Cor Maria acres. Um, and then the other end of it, they went all the way down past the condos and down to Redwood, so it includes WLNG and the and the marinas, uh, ship ashore, and uh, what's it Redwood Anchorage? I guess it's or Sag Harbor Anchorage. I always forget the name. 
Um, so they expanded on that note. Uh, note and um, a, a re- well, the, the, the original version had a lot of changes to the village use code, which really uh, caused stumble because not only did they have like, not only did they have like retail uses, but they would have like specific retail uses. Uh, you know, so you could have like, I don't know, a houseware shop or, a, you know, a candle shop or, a, and it, it got kind of complicated and cumbersome. And then finally, the last thing that really was making things difficult, I think, uh, was that it was going to be what they call a form-based code where planners give you sort of guidelines for specific uses to replace the strict arithmetic of a standard zoning code. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Uh, the mayor made the distinction that that he felt like the form-based code really left a lot of it up to interpretation by the regulatory boards. And his point was that the regulatory boards, I mean, I, I think he spoke frankly and he said, you know, these, these are volunteers and they're not people who necessarily have training in planning and, and, and all of that. And, and so I think one of the reasons they, they seem to want to move away from the form-based code is that they want to create some more strict measures that that allow for a little less interpretation by the, the regulatory boards. And the other key aspect of what's being proposed on the waterfront right now is that it would add a layer of approval where uh, if you wanted to build a larger building on the waterfront, you would need a special exception permit from the village board. So the village board would now have some say in the larger projects in this waterfront district. Uh, when I inherited this effort in uh, underway, uh, I felt that it needed some tuning. And the tuning was, first of all, to include the entire waterfront, or at least the entire commercial waterfront, which the original design did not. And so that's one of the changes that you'll find. Um, I thought uh, years ago when I was first around that the idea of uh, having a special process for large developments or a, a special additional process made a lot of sense so that the Board of Trustees will be directly involved uh, at the end of the process for buildings, uh, commercial or residential, over 3,500 square feet. Um, the other tools uh, relate to more of the detail of size and dimension and all the rest. But the entire package and the vision, if, if there was one, was to give us a stronger hand as the value of these properties continue to uh, accelerate and the um, interest in them. Uh, there are more people circling the village now than ever before. Steve, I, and so yeah. we talked about, I actually cribbed from you that, that we were talking about before this gathering and we discussed how this sort of compares to what Southampton town had when they had the PDD, the planned development district zoning, except that there's a big distinction. The the PDD allowed the town board to say, well, all the regulatory boards are opposed to something. We're going to still allow it. Whereas what's being proposed in Sag Harbor is the opposite. The regulatory boards could all sign off on a project and the village board could still say no. Right. But the other way around, the village can't approve something that the other boards have already denied. Exactly. Correct. That's it. Would be and, it. Would be. It's more like a layer of. Uh, it's a safety valve, I guess. 
And I'm curious because I um, join uh, Annette and being two people that were not in attendance at the session. Um, so I'm curious, what was the um, kind of thought in the room about that change? Because prior to the session, we had a little bit of discussion. And, you know, as somebody who's covered regulatory boards for a lot of my journalism career, you know, it, it kind of struck me as kind of a strange thing, you know, that would kind of make your regulatory boards feel like number one, you don't really have very much faith in them. Um, but then also it could potentially politicize um, development because, you know, now you have elected officials weighing in on development projects. So I'm just curious what people thought about that. Did you guys get a sense of that? Yes, yeah, Steve. I mean, the mayor was pretty insistent that it's not a usurpation of yeah. the regulatory board's powers, but I mean, there's really no way to sugarcoat it. it. It does for these larger projects, it lays one more hurdle on top and the, and the village board could absolutely veto a project that's been approved by the regulatory boards. I mean, that's just a fact. Um, but the mayor seemed to, to want to stress that he didn't think that that turned out to be a veto, but I, yeah. your I didn't points, see any. I didn't see any any great opposition to it. I didn't. I mean, no. Mm. I think one of the big concerns in the in the entire room, or not concerns, or one of the hopes is that these regulatory boards get as much support as possible. Um, Susan Mead was saying that, that she would like to see a, a planner hired by the village in those meetings, especially when these big projects are being being considered. Um, so, so whether it's the additional layer of the village board or some additional planners in the room, people want to get it right. And I think that there, you know, the, the mayor admitted yesterday that there were some mistakes made with the Bialski condos in terms of them allowing a height based on the cupola of the previous, uh, you know, 1-800 lawyers builder a building, as we always called it, that was um, in place before those condos. So they, they allowed that height to be at where the cupola was, and they think that that was a mistake. So again, going back to the fact that these are regulatory boards with uh, volunteers who are, who, are, who are doing their best, but to give them that extra layer of support, some people would like to see a planner in the room. Uh, clearly, the mayor thinks that an extra layer of, of approval through the village board will, will add to, to that support. Um, but, but either way, I think the goal is to make sure that, uh, that these projects are look, being looked at by professionals when possible, including professional planners. I think they also have to be careful that they don't get sued. You know, somebody doesn't get their way, right. you know, deep pockets come along and sue. And I could just envision a, a, a case where, let's say, um, a planning board or a zoning board approves something. And if the village board overturns it, that just seems like you would just open yourself up to major lawsuits. But the flip side of that, the point was made that if the village board says, if, if this application would go to the village board first, and the village board said, okay, uh, we, we like this. Does that put undue pressure on the regulatory boards? That's a fair point too. Right, right. But I was just going to say though, that the, the village started down this same path when they passed the, the law on the, what is the gross floor area ratio law, whatever, but they, they withdrew that. And I'm sorry, but I'm drawing a blank because I can't remember why they gave that up. But they had at the time, I think the village board was going to approve or, or, you know, or deny any house above 4,000 square feet, which to my way of thinking in a village, which is full of quarter acre and eighth acre lots, 
uh, it's just way too big, you know, I mean, but, um, but they also can't get bogged down. People are building bigger houses. You know, Georgie made a great point that I, that I think we sort of need to stress here, which is that there's a reason villages set up regulatory boards and they're appointed boards. They're not elected positions. And the idea is that, as I believe the mayor said at the, at the gathering yesterday, they're sort of siloed that, that, that the regulatory boards make decisions and the village board has no control over how those decisions are made. It's meant to insulate those boards from the political process. Now, if you add a vote by the village board into that process, you've introduced politics into this now. Now you have elected officials who are gonna have a vote and that means campaign contributions are gonna come from developers. And I, I was, while I, you know, I hesitate taking shots at anybody, I felt like the mayor's response to that when we raised it was, well, we don't really spend any money in the village races anyway. Well, that's really not true. There's actually been quite a bit of money spent in the village races all over the South Fork lately. And yeah. I think this change will likely mean a lot more money coming into those races from developers. And then you have a whole hornet's nest of issues with conflicts. And I, I, I think that's the one part of this. I understand why they want to do it, but I have great hesitation for adding a layer on top, which seems to suggest you don't, as Georgie, to Georgie's point, you don't seem to have confidence in your regulatory board's ability to do what you want to do. And by the way, the regulatory boards would turn around and say, well, you're not giving us enough guidance on what the overall planning picture is in the village because they don't have a comprehensive plan. Um, so this is, I, I think it's sort of showing where there are some gaps in Sag Harbor's planning and they need to be filled quickly because as the point was made yesterday at the panel discussion, the development pressures in Sag Harbor may be unprecedented right now. Uh, it, it may be more now than ever before. I mean, it kind of feels very much like it did, you know, about like 15 years ago, I guess. Right when I started at the Express, um, there was like three huge condo projects all proposed at the same time in Sag Harbor Village. You had the watch case condos, you had the um, condos where now the Bialski condos stand. It was a different project proposed then called Ferry Road. And then you had West Water Street a little further down and it was a lot all at once. Um, and now it does kind of feel like that again. Um, and the village of Sag Harbor doesn't have a planning department. You know, its building department is tiny. Um, so it's very short staffed and, you know, it has regulatory boards that rely on, you know, village attorneys and planners to give them advice, but it doesn't have a comprehensive plan. It does have a local waterfront revitalization plan and a planning strategies document from 2009 that kind of could serve as a roadmap forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, a comprehensive plan would probably be a good idea, but more importantly, I think that they just need more staff, um, you know, more people in terms of planners who can really guide these boards and who can sit in on every meeting. I mean, there was a time where there was a planner and a village attorney at every single regulatory board meeting in the village of Sag Harbor. And I understand that that can be expensive, but I just don't think in a time like now, 
you can really be pinching pennies on that kind of thing. Especially if you're opening yourself up to lawsuits, that's going to cost a lot more in the end. So is that part of it all, what they're talking about? I wonder if we could clarify a little bit about what this, the, the mayor's plan for the waterfront um, zoning involves and how does it differ from other parts of the village? And is a planner part of the thought process at this point? Well, as far as I know, a, 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 the hiring of a, of a dedicated planner is not part of this process at all. And I, although I certainly agree that that would be a valuable, it would be worth its every its every penny spent, and um, that, that currently, it, as far as I know, there's only a, a, a planning representative there when you have some big issue that that you know is it, ha, it has to be straightened out or worked through. And it's like a consultant then, right? Yeah, a planning consultant. Yeah, and and which is what they've always had, but it's just that. I don't know, you know, the, the, how the budget works, that the, there's not someone there every at every meeting. It's like there used to be. Rich Warren used to be parked in the second floor, you know, office for everything. That just seems to make so much sense to have somebody there that just has a general vision of everything that's going on rather than bringing some consultant in piecemeal here and there. And I guess Rich Warren, was he there for Bolova, Georgie? Do you remember? Was that his role? Yeah, Richard Warren with InterScience um, was the planner for the village for a really long time. Um, I, I covered the village then and he did, a I thought, a really great job. He was at every meeting. And so what was nice was there was consistency, um, you know, because he, uh, application like Bulova would be before the planning board and the zoning board and the harbor committee. And, you know, he was able to kind of keep all of the boards apprised of what everybody else was discussing. Um, so it was really helpful. You know, that was one of the takeaways, Gavin and, and Steve. Um, it was sort of subtext, but I thought it was interesting um, when part of the conversation appeared to be that the, the various regulatory boards really aren't communicating with each other very well either. And, and information is not being shared among the regulatory boards in an effective way. That seems to be some of the feedback uh, that we heard um, during the conversation. And that's probably leads to a much more inefficient and inconsistent uh, evaluation process by the regulatory boards. And I, I think then the question becomes, I, I think it's, it's improper if the planning board and the ZBA are exchanging notes, you know, I mean, it's got to be, it has to be someone who is, you know, which is why you need a planner. Yeah. And I also just would like to throw out here, I, I, I do not mean to criticize Nelson Pope Voorhees, which is the, the current uh, planning consultant, but something has definitely changed in how that setup is. And I, you know, I don't know what the, why they're not there on a regular basis, like Rich Warren used to be, but that would be the first thing I would do if I wanted to improve the planning process. You know, again, just having somebody consistently um, in front of the boards just to be able to kind of like thread that dialogue because Steve's right, like zoning boards and planning boards shouldn't be getting together and sharing notes on specific applications. Like that's not appropriate, but having a dedicated planner and attorney to say, okay, you know, this is kind of what the landscape looks like, I think is, traditionally been really helpful. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com.
27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. I think Sag Harbor is kind of unique uh, among all of the villages on the South Fork with that development pressure because of the waterfront. And, and that is what makes it different. I mean, West Hampton Beach has something sort of similar, but not exactly. Um, and it certainly doesn't have the history uh, that Sag Harbor does. All of the different things that make Sag Harbor unique probably mean that they, sh- they are in a unique situation about how they should be staffing to deal with these development, and, and especially with all of the development swirling around uh, the village right now. Um, this is, I think the point was made during the conversation. They've got one chance to get this right, because whatever they do with this code, there will be applications coming in immediately after that will that will scrape the sides of both sides of those open doors uh, in that code to try and get as much as possible. And um, you, you got one shot to get it right. And, and uh, time is ticking. You know, they've got, they've got to get this, get this figured out. So. So the big two pieces that we're talking about on that waterfront areas right now is the West water street shops that the Bay street theater friends, of Bay street theater, have purchased for a potential new Bay Street Theater site. And then also the so-called Fort Apache development, which was the um, string of shops there at the foot of Main Street. So those two parcels are probably the one that people are most concerned about now because those look like they might be the next to possibly come online. Is there other concerns? Uh, Gavin, do you have a yeah, well, well. Uh, also, the the what's known as the office district, which we talk about the waterfront, um, the and, and and the environmental issues that come up in this discussion. Um, the the whole space behind um, behind Main Street, basically to the west of Main Street, right, which is like Rose Street and Bridge Street. That those have all been purchased recently by people connected to the same group as the Friends of Bay Street. So there's plans not just for a development project here or there, but lots of development projects at the same time, potentially. Uh, and there's environmental issues in that area where, where it's very, uh, the water table is very high. So the idea of, of digging into that or building something is gonna disrupt that water, which already washes into the uh, basement of the Emporium hardware store. Uh, Susan Mead, who's, who uh, works closely, and I believe is on the board of the Sag Harbor Cinema, said that they had to build that basically as a bathtub to collect the water that, that flows into the, to the bottom of that structure. So that you know, the I would say yes that the that the the West Water Street shops were the the conversation over the last year because it involves Bay Street and it's an important piece of land uh, with an important cultural institution. But that office district area behind Main Street uh, is a is a, going to be a huge point of focus for its inv- environmental impacts as well as uh, what they're going to allow back there. Uh, Steve spoke to the uses that were allowed in this previous code where they were going to expand that in the office district and um, you know the chamber of commerce of which I am the president we spoke and said 
a lot of people uh, in Sag Harbor kind of like it the way it is now. Uh, it's pretty successful the way it is now. Do we really want to expand the business district into into that that office district areas um, and, and sort of change the nature of the of the village? So um, there's a there's actually a lot of different pieces that are playing out really right at the same time. And just for the timeline of this process is. I'm proud that we held this, this uh, session just a few days before they're going to have a public hearing, which is on Tuesday, which will be a few days uh, th this podcast will come out after that. But then the, there's a building moratorium that's set to expire in February. So th this isn't something that's, that's planned to play out over months and months and months. They're hoping to have things starting to wrap up by December so that by the time that building moratorium is up, they've got a new code in place with some rules, some regulations to follow so that these um, regulatory boards know what to expect when these applications come up. And I mean, and just to get back to that office district area, it, I mean, it is, everybody's talking about the Bay Street parcel, you know, right next to Steinbeck Park, but you look at the fact that all of these other parcels, you know, behind Main Street have been purchased by different LLCs all connected to the same group. I mean, that's gonna be a large development back there, whatever, whatever it ends up looking like. And we haven't seen any formal plans yet, obviously, because of the building. And, and none of that area is on the sewer system, right? Is that all? Not yet. Right. right. Well, it's interesting is that the, the village actually received funding uh, you know, from the CPF, Southampton Town CPF for engineering work to study expanding sewage, the sewage treatment lines to that area. Mm. And they're also working on similar projects on the East Hampton side. So, um, Gavin, I'm curious, as the head, of the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce, what are the issues that you're hearing from the member organization and member businesses? And like, what are their biggest fears about the whole waterfront district? And what are their biggest hopes? Well, well, I think the biggest problem is that there's confusion as usual, which is which is why these discussions are are important and why we constantly encourage people uh, from both the newspaper and from my seat at the chamber to get involved and to pay attention, because so often uh, the law gets passed and then people say, wait, I didn't realize this or I didn't realize that. So number one is um, th this is th there's a public hearing on this. There, th this is the time to engage. And we're going to be uh, sharing information with the membership uh, about about the the current zoning code because it is different from the previous one but there the there's concerns about the size of, of some of the uses uh, retail uses that would be allowed in the office district and whether that would give them an unfair advantage uh, if, a, if a larger uh, store is allowed in the office district compared to what's allowed on Main Street uh, would that give that off that uh, competing business sort of an unfair advantage um, but I, I think most of the the business uh, community, would like to see Sag Harbor uh, sort of stay the course here, kind of growing organically like it has. And we talked about this yesterday a little bit over the last hundred years and not sort of uh, over a couple year time sort of morph into some something totally different. You know, the mix of mom and pop shops and, and sort of higher end smaller retail and, and restaurants and cafes, that's what makes Sag Harbor special and that it's all on the waterfront. So I think the business community wants to preserve as much as that as possible. And I think scale is really important too. You know, we, this is the second large zoning code revision in the last, you know, couple decades. And the previous one was in 2009 and really dealt with Main Street and Bay Street and trying to preserve exactly what Gavin's talking about, the mix of uses um, and the small, 
um, diverse mix of uses. We have a lot of small stores in Sag Harbor and it kind of lends itself to the diversity of shops and restaurants. Um, it gives the village this really great walkability that you know planners prize when they look at urban planning. And so, you know, small scale is what exists in Sag Harbor for its businesses right now. So if now you're allowing things to expand into these larger stores in this office district, that is a big change from what exists in the village today and what has been successful. And we also don't forget, we have Long Wharf there. You have uh, Bay Street Theater. If they do indeed build a new theater and move out of that space, that's going to be... I was, I was going to say, there's an elephant in the room here, and I, and I think we should probably explain this to people who have either watched the, the, the session uh, on 27east.com, or I'm assuming we're also going to post, oh, it's on LTV, I'm sorry. Um, I was, that's where it's going to be. It's actually, are we doing, we're not going to have video on the website, are we? Yes, we will also have video on the website. It'll be on the website too. Okay, so, or it's on LTV. If you've watched it or if you plan to watch it, it's important to note that the village, because we had two village board members on the panel, they can't discuss individual yeah. projects and they can't discuss even potential individual projects. That would be a bad idea because anything they say is then gonna be turned around and used in a court case once an application's filed. If they don't get approval, they're gonna say, well, the village board was biased against us, look at these comments they made before we even filed an application. So we don't have those limitations here. We can say that coming down the pike is all of this has to do with Bay Street to a large degree too, and the friends of Bay Street and what all of this is going to, how it's going to fit into what exists in the village. And, and we couldn't have that conversation out loud yesterday. We had to have it sort of in broad strokes, but I, I think it bears us ex at least exploring now that part of the problem is you're going to have an application at some point for Bay Street to, to build in on that waterfront and you need to have some guidelines in place that allow you to guide that into something like what you want. And um, I think that's probably why it's the Bay Street proposal that's out there waiting to be filed someday is why you've seen the village board review added because they want to have a say in in what happens with that project i think it's that simple it's probably that comes down to that, that. and and then the possibility of malloy exactly. in the future and the possibility of stay say over yacht yard the um yep. for maria it's um, really not just even though bay street of course is you know the project that you know a lot of people have focused on and the friends of bay street buying all of those properties, um, you know, behind Main Street, you know, certainly that's been the focus, but Steve's right. I mean, P Pat Malloy, um, you know, owns a big chunk of property right on Long Wharf. You know, you've got the Sag Harbor Yacht Yard, which has been under new ownership for a few years now. Um, they haven't really developed anything um, new down there, but that's not to say that they don't want to. If Cormaria ever hit the market, I mean, so there are a lot of potential developments that could occur on the waterfront and making sure that there's public access to the waterfront is so important for a village like Sag Harbor. So, you know, like Steve said earlier, ensuring that 
you're not going to have all of these projects come down the line that basically wall off the waterfront. You want to make sure you have big side yard setbacks so that you can preserve some of these view sheds to the water. You want to make sure you don't have tall gargantuan buildings dominating the waterfront. Um, so. Yeah. so the district that they're looking to create, is it really just that narrow, like, for example, um, next to the Sag Harbor Post Office, that lot that's owned by the Scavoni family, that would not be considered because it's not, it has to literally be that is part of it. That is part of it. That is part of it. What's interesting on this particular, uh, if I were to, you know, if, if I had my way, I would, I would actually pull the whole office district section out of this and do that separately, but time is of the essence. Um, but the, 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 the waterfront overlay district includes both sides of Bay Street and both sides of Water Street, and um, you know, as well as the office district, which is really technically not the waterfront, but uh, I guess so that whole area that Gavin was talking about, Rose Street and all and Bridge yeah. Street, all that, that is part of this district we're talking about. I mean, technically it is waterfront district because it's usually underwater. Could be waterfront yeah. by the, the time. underwater district. <laughs> give, give it a couple decades, you know. <laughs> a couple we weeks, man. You remember what it looked like after Sandy back there? Oh my God. Absolutely. Kayaking back uh, there. You know, I mean, and I, we all know that if you walk over there at high tide, there's water coming out of the storm sewers. You know, I mean, it's like I mean <laughs> when you have Phragmites growing in the middle of the street, you know it's probably fairly damp, but that's just uh, exactly. We, we were lucky enough to have Fred Thiel, our state assemblyman, at the event yesterday. He, he's often a panelist. This time he was a guest, but he had some he had some pretty sage words for everybody. And um, he was the Sag Harbor Village attorney when they did their big uh, zoning changes back in 2009. And he, he said both developers and these boards just want to know what they can do and what they can't do. They want it to be as clear as can be as possible. And that goes back to that, uh, that form-based code thing that's been scrapped where uh, it seemed a little wishy-washy. And, 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 and we need at this time, at this moment in time, very clear cut rules to follow. And Fred said that if you develop this code and he, and he was, he was um, complimentary of, of the code as it stands today, I think, uh, you know, give these people the tools to follow because the, the regulatory boards are going to have some discretion, right? That's why you have a zoning board of appeals to allow something to, to, to be different. But if they, if they have these strict rules to follow right out of the gate and developers know exactly what to expect, you're just going to set up a better process. So I think that um, while, while Fred said that you have to develop this important code, uh, really more importantly, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's these people who are sitting on these boards um, who who need support and um, who need planners and who need experts to sort of guide them along the path. So the code is really just the start of the process. We also had one of those moments that you only get at the live events when uh, the architect for the Bialski condos uh, stood up at one moment and objected to a characterization by Bob Plum about the height of those projects, which was great. I mean, that's the kind of um, I, you know, as moderator at an event like that, I actually really love stuff like that because it's organic, you know, you can't plan for something like that. But we went back to, so as long as the salmon wasn't flying across the room, right? <laughs> yeah. Nobody was throwing no, it was, food. <laughs> it was a little heated for a moment, but, uh, but I think that, that one of the great things about an event like that is you give people a chance to talk. And I think it takes the tone down a little bit. And we went back to him later uh, and he offered some thoughts from an architect's point of view about what and, and it basically echoed what Fred Thiel said that everybody just wants to know what the rules are 
then you follow the rules. And if and and if somebody's trying to not follow the rules, then then you deal with that. But if everybody has the rules laid out in front of them, um, for the most part, it makes it easier for both sides. So, and I guess technically, Biaski um, condos were built based on what the board said that they could do at that time. Right? They got approval yeah. for everything right. they got. Right. right. So to blame, you know, that's the thing. It's like there's a lot of like vilifying of the developer. But it's, it is kind of unfair because the developer was asked, what can I do? Here's what you can do. Here's what I did. And then everyone's like, how could they do that? You know, I think that's always kind of frustrating. Mean, I could see that being very frustrating if you're an architect or a developer or something of that nature. So. There's some also some take there's some takeaways from that project, because as Bob Plum described yesterday, there was like park fever surrounding that. Right. Because yeah. there's also Steinbeck Park kind of tied up in that in that whole conversation. And now we're going into a time period where the Bay Street Theater, which to a person in Sag Harbor, everybody loves and talks about how important it is to the village, both from a cultural standpoint, from a business standpoint. We all love Bay Street Theater. Uh, but th that shouldn't mean much when you're talking about zoning codes and what's going to be allowed, especially on the on the yeah. waterfront or environmentally sensitive areas. So th there's some echoes of that coming down the pike here where uh, we, 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 the village needs to make sure that their code is not speaking to one one business mm -hmm. or another or a beloved cultural institution. But it's just the code that Sag Harbor needs uh, for the entire village. And then the Bay Street project and any other after that can come along and do what they need to do within those parameters. But I do see some similarities between those two uh, two moments in time. I think I think in the past, and Georgie, I know, and, and Steve, I'm sure you've seen this too in Sag Harbor, the whole idea when 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 people feel like they're going to get park space, they, they'll say, oh, great, let's let them build whatever. You know, like there's sort of like that. With, if they get something in return, sometimes people just see the thing they're getting in return and don't think about what is going in there. Like I think of that former Rocco's club down on Westwater that was such a nightmare. You know, I don't think a lot of people paid attention to the condos that were going in because they were so happy to see that other place go out. So I think that's the other thing is that often people are, you know, they're going after the carrot, but not realizing what the stick's going to be. But I think that that's totally changed now. And I think, you know, for better or for worse, the Bialski condo project has kind of ended that. And you're hearing a lot of people say, you know, I don't care if I'm getting more parklands. I don't care if, you know, it, guarantees Bay Street Theater is going to be in Sag Harbor. If it's out of scale and doesn't fit in Sag Harbor, I don't want it. And that is kind of what you're hearing from a lot of people. Of course, all of us want Bay Street to stay. And, you know, my hope is that there is a, you know, a plan that fits within the code that makes sense for them. And, you know, everybody can be happy. But, you know, I think that people are less likely to be okay with any sort of quid pro quo when it comes to development. I think the other thing is people are starting to realize, yeah, Parkland's great, but you know what? Sac Harbor is a village and density is part of being in a, in a village. And the whole idea of trading away real estate to become park is maybe you know not exactly what you should be doing with a downtown village area. You know, More open space is not necessarily what you want in a place where people are coming to shop and, um, and go to entertainment venues and things. I say, I think that's a good point because, you know, you lose a dozen businesses and you have no place to replace them, except perhaps the office district, which is underwater. I mean, um, you mean physically, not rhetorically. <laughs> I mean, physically. Yeah. Clarifying. Literally. Literally. Yeah. 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that, yeah, people got all starry eyed about the whole idea of parks, 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 but now I think there's a whole, you know, now it's affordable housing and parking and stores. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that was another thing tossed out there about the possibility of bringing affordable housing. You know, another, here comes another carrot, you know, to, to bog down the bog even further. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, um, it's going to be a lot of bodies buried back there behind uh, Rose Street. <laughs> so, but I think also oh the God. biggest takeaway from this event this week is that it's really important that people remain involved and all of those people that showed up at the hotel, you know, they also need to go to their village board meetings and weigh in and be active participants in this process because, you know, people really care about what the future of Sag Harbor looks like. And, you know, I think that you do have a village board that's willing to hear you right now. So if you are a Sag Harbor person and you want to be a part of this process, get involved. Absolutely. My other big takeaway was Natagosi. Uh, what a terrific panelist and so much insight that he provided. But my big takeaway is he really has a second career if Stanley Tucci needs a stand-in <laughs> because he has a serious Stanley Tucci vibe. Like I think he could place in a Stanley Tucci lookalike contest. And that's a compliment. That's a, that's high. So maybe we can do that like Italian series, like, but with Nat, like going to the if you, local cappuccino. If you can't and, get uh, Stanley Tucci, then I think we should approach Nat and see if he's willing, because I think. Okay. We could shoot that at El Cappuccino with the, you know, it would be the, a Chianti, the Chianti bottles. Yes. <laughs> All right, good. So we have a TV show in the making here. <laughs> All right, I think we've exhausted this topic. How about the rest of you? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> Steve, take a nap. He has to go take a nap. <laughs> well, we never mentioned the fact that they have like a two-story height limit, but yeah. Hey, details, details. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.